I'm currently in the process of writing a novel. Um, again, as, like I said, I see myself as a messenger to, to bring AI to the rest of the world and just let people understand the value of AI, but beyond that, understand the implications and the challenges that are being faced. What's up, folks? I'm your host, Adley Christoffels, and you're listening to A Curious Life, the show where we delve into how the trait of curiosity has impacted the lives and careers of our guests. Campfire-like discussions that serve as a window into the essence of who they are. Today's guest, Toji Duke, is the embodiment of curiosity. She exudes positive energy, and her passion for social justice and equality is unmistakable and highly infectious. So join us for a behind-the-scenes look at the experiences that has brought her to today. Toju, absolute pleasure to see you again after so many years and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Hadley. It's great to see you again as well. Awesome. So so listen, as you know, this is a show where essentially we want to we wanna find out, in this case, the woman behind the movement, right? Uh, and we want to know more about you. So uh, we kind of take this approach of campfire-like discussions where imagine you're sitting around a campfire, we're telling the story of our life. And yeah, you're up, <laughs> you know, but before we get into Toju and what makes it tick, um, I've got one question that I ask each guest, uh, and this is, what does curiosity mean to you? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I always say that curiosity did not kill the cats, because where we grew up, we grew up with the saying of curiosity killed the cats, so don't be too curious because you can get killed. And I've learned that that's not the case. So I think for me, curiosity is just having a genuine hunger and uh, thirst to learn more and to know more, to understand what lies beneath the surface on different subject topics and subject matters. So it's um, just wanting to go deeper, dig a little bit deeper, being willing and open to learn new things. And if you hear about a certain concept, just being curious enough to know what it means and why it, why it exists, what are the challenges, and you find out that the more curious you are in life, it gets more interesting because you're learning so many different things and that can even help. Yeah, that can help with, you know, your direction in life, in your career, your personal life, you know, and you just accumulate so much knowledge by being curious. Yeah. And do you do you find sometimes that actually it's because having, and, and one of my other guest classes is general curiosity, right? But if by having a general curiosity about things, you tend to discover more about yourself and, in fact, um, what direction you want to go in, right? Uh, in life, in your personal life, as well as professional life. Do you do you find that statement to be accurate? Yeah, that's what's happened to me now. How I got into the field of AI is from curiosity. I was just curious, what is this whole ML hype about? And there was a, a sales, um, there was a training for non-techies at my workplace in Google. And I, I went out of curiosity. I was like, I just want to hear more. What's this whole hype about? The moment I heard about it, I was like, wow, I want more. <laughs> and I kept on wanting more and I'm still wanting more. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> That's pretty much me, man. It's, but isn't that the beauty about it? It's like the fact that the, you'll never, ever be able to learn everything is is encouraging because you know it just means that you your curiosity needs no bounds and it needs no ends it just needs a little direction from time to time and what you go deeper on but you know curiosity itself doesn't necessarily need an endpoint <laughs> exactly and it just makes life interesting you should never settle down and just think you know everything and you don't want to learn more that's that's 
that's a, a dead man's position. Like it's only people in the grave that can never learn anything more. Like you always have to be open to taking and soaking much more knowledge. And it's to just guide you in your life decisions and you know where you're gonna go and you know, sometimes even towards profit and making more money. Like it's just it's just important to be curious. Really important. Okay. Now that that's awesome. So come on, let's let's find out about Toju. <laughs> let's find out the essence of Toju, right? So 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 give us give us tell us a story, right? Um where were you born, siblings, etc. Um take us to the very beginning. Okay. All right. Um I'm not gonna tell you my age. I'm not gonna go that far. <laughs> of course not, and I will not ask. <laughs> I'm yeah, a gentleman. <laughs> yeah, never ask age. You look about twenty one, right? So yeah. I'm gonna just go with that. I think yeah. I'm sixteen, so I was born in 1925. 19, <laughs> so um, I'm originally Nigerian. Um I grew up in Nigeria. I was born in Nigeria. So my mom... Which part of Nigeria, sorry? Down south, called um, River State. Um, the city is called Potako, and that's where all the um, oil companies were all based. So we had Shell and uh, Chevron. Chevron was in Potako, it was in Lagos. But we had uh, Slumberger, and all the oil servicing and oil production companies were all based in Potako. Okay. So it was a pretty industrial type city yeah uh, but but pretty large and i guess with oil there was a lot of money as well or yes okay the money was flowing in there a lot um everything is in the past now because it just got really bad um people started kidnapping anyone who seemed affluent so um, i think with time the companies had to relocate um and leave and i think the economy got a little bit bad but it was it was great then because it was just offering jobs to you know the local indigents and it was just a great way everyone a lot of people wanted to become engineers especially the men so that it could end up getting a job in the oil company because you know once you get a job in the oil company they're literally made like they pay really well yeah so um that's actually something i want to touch on earlier it's just that statement especially the men right because it's engineering and i'm assuming that at least in part that has an influence on on your responsible and equitable ai kind of um mission right now but but let we'll we'll get we'll get there later on we'll get there yeah, yeah. okay cool so so yeah. so so we in the city yeah. how do you pronounce it again just remind me portacos so port port is one word and harcourt is the second word so it's almost like an english word um and uh the state was full of seas so there were always thunderstorms and lightnings and you hear some stories like there was always this myth of don't stand under the tree because you could get struck by a lightning. Got it. And we've heard stories of people dying from being struck by lightning. Whoa. Because, yeah. So That's anytime. <laughs> I know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah. Laughter is always the best way to deal with stuff, but I couldn't let that one go. <laughs> I, I didn't know anyone that died from it, but I'm sure I'm sure there were real stories. I don't think they were myths, like, but there were there were odd, odd, odd ones. But yeah, even right now, if I hear thunderstorms now, I get excited because it reminds me of my childhood. And it reminds was, you, yeah, Johannesburg is right. kind of the same with the sky lights up, right? Right. It's it's crazy. So so okay, family, mother, father, siblings. Yeah, so um, I'm actually the only child. Um, my mom, my mom uh, had three miscarriages that I'm aware of. Um, so I grew up as an only child, and I absolutely hated it. You know, I used to talk to myself, talk to my dolls. It was just such a lonely experience. So sometimes I used to imagine that I had three other siblings, 
and I was like the third child. I, when I was a teenager, my mom used to annoy me. I would just be like thinking of how it all revolted against my parents. Um, at, that, at that time, I'd lost my dad. I lost my dad at 12. So oh, it was just sorry to hear that. Me and my mom, and she was really, thank you. She was really overprotective as well. Um, and I saw the impact it had on my mom. But I, I just grew up with a, with a very large imagination. And um, at some stage, I had to work on it because I could just sit down and just scare myself to death. I could just sit down and start imagining crazy stuff and start screaming. And I was like, okay, you have to stop this nonsense. <laughs> it's like you need some drama in your life. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, everybody needs to spice it up a little. <laughs> okay. That's exactly what I was doing. So I kind of walked on that. Um, and I went into acting at some stage and I loved that. And maybe that was just a way of me expressing myself beyond. So I was always like a very good actress. I was always like taking the lead. A little bit more constructive way to express your creativity, love. <laughs> Darling. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, your imagination and all that. So so that that's uh, that's the family side of things. Um, okay. Okay, and and were you spoiled as the only child? Well, people say I was, but <laughs> I'm not gonna admit it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna admit it. But a few people, you know, when I was growing up, a few people met me and said that they never knew I was an only child. Like if I didn't say it, so I, I guess I was, I was also pretty mature and pretty responsible to a certain extent. And and did you do your schooling in 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 Portacos? Yes. So my mom was doing a PhD. She gave birth to me in she was actually in the UK in Loughborough. Um and then went back to Nigeria to give birth to me and then took me back with her to Loughborough when I was about 1 or 6 months. And I was very annoyed with her when I was an adult because I couldn't get a a part of visa into the UK easily. And I was like, I was almost born here, like, you know. Um, so I was in the UK. I was in Loughborough for like four, five years. Then I went back to Nigeria. Um, so what was your mom's PhD in? Um, I think it was physiology. So she's a, she's a lecturer. She, she retired two years ago. So she was a professor. My dad, she was a professor. She was um, physiology and nutrition. Um, and my dad um, was microbiology. So both scientists. Um, yeah. And did that not have an influence or some form of pressure for you to go down this PhD route as well? Or? No. <laughs> really because really because I'd seen that in Nigeria the government doesn't value the the lecturers and the educational system. So they were always going on strike. The unions were always going on strike. They were paid pennies. Uh and I was like, there's no way I'm going to study this hard to be paid pennies. And that long, yeah. And that long. So my mom always used to call me a dunce and saying that I'm the only one in the family that has refused to do a PhD. And I'm like, even till today, I'm still having <laughs> I'm like, I don't I don't see the need. And you know, I keep on having these conversations, you know, and I'm like, I keep on asking myself, I don't want to go into academia, so why do I need a PhD? You know, and that's uh, for me, it's not just about the titles. And I think about the four years, I'm going to dig my life into it. And I'm like, you know, I know there are other routes now you can do PhD by publication, but that's still me doing some research and writing a few research papers. And I still don't see the need. Are there any other moments that is memorable to you? Kind of, you know, going through primary school, going through high school that you think you want to kind of call out as either significant in your life going forward or uh, especially this, 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 moving between England or the UK and Nigeria, you know, uh, what that was like and how it impacted you? Yeah, I think the the move from the UK, I mean, it was a culture shift for me. Um, 
but I don't remember so much of it apart from the fact that my mom said I had an accent and I and I swallowed it with gari, which is a Nigerian <laughs> a Nigerian meal. I always used to joke about that. Um, but the significant part is is the same thing you've touched upon is making that choice on what to study in university. So um, I'm I'm pretty sure it's the same in Johannesburg, but in Nigeria and I think for almost every family of color. For us, you know, growing up, there were only three professions you could get into. It was either being a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. Like <laughs> everything else. Yeah, exist, yeah, it's right? worthless. <laughs> Don't even think about going into the arts, man. It's like no, <laughs> you what? You want music? Thing? Acting? <laughs> you serious? Actually, do some. Three... Get a proper job. <laughs> get a proper job. <laughs> I'm almost subconsciously doing the things to my doing the same thing to my kids but not not intentionally but it's almost like i'm like this one will be an engineer an engineer doctor and this one will be i'm like this one will be a doctor technical doctor or something but anyway um for my parents i just chose medicine because to the point that we made before engineering was almost for boys but at, at that stage i didn't realize that i just doctor just felt great so my dad's friends would come to the house i'm like told you what do you want to be when you grow up and I'm like, I want to be a doctor. I'm doctor. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mommy's proud. Daddy's proud. I'm like, that's my girl. Because <laughs> there's big props to the parents as well at that point, right? It's almost more about them than it is about what you want to do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's so funny because my parents are lecturers. I'm surprised that didn't come up as a as an option, right? And most of my parents' friends are lecturers as well. But I always had to fall within those three different careers. Um, so I grew up saying, okay, I wanted to be a doctor. And then by the time I got to uh, my fifth year in high school, I thought about it. I was like, no, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. Now no, the, 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 the universities are always going on strike. And uh, in Nigeria, it's almost like seven, eight odd years to, to, to get a, a medical degree. Like, I think it was supposed to take like six years. But because of all the strikes, and the strikes could be as long as six months, six months, um, university students are out of university. They can't do anything. They can't study. They can't, you know, they can't do anything. They can't do their exams. And by the time you add all of that, you know, I'd heard of stories of people eight to nine years, they still hadn't graduated from medical school. And I was like, that is not for me. Then the second thing was, you know, I learned that you have to study, study, study. You don't have time for a life. You don't have time to party and all that. And I was like, I want to live my life, you know, in university. I want to party and stuff. So I was like, I'm not going to do it. Um, but then I didn't realize that was almost too late to make that choice. So I had to retake my A-levels exams. I had to wait for an extra year to retake So you did them. your A-levels here? In, in, sorry, you did your A-levels in the UK? In, in, no, in Nigeria. It's, it's, I'm, just, I'm just using the, the equivalent. We call it JAM over there, um, JAM exams. Um, so I had to retake that. I had to wait an extra year to retake it because now I was asking to switch from a science student to an arts student. Um, and I had no idea what I wanted to study. So the only thing I could think of was mass communication. And I wanted to be like a newscaster. Now, I wasn't quite passionate about that. But out of all the options that were available, that just seemed to be the most interesting thing. And I had friends who who wanted to do it as well. Yeah. So I, I And you could get in. Well, I couldn't get in. No, I did the exam. Oh, not yet. Oh, you had to actually take the exam again. Okay. I had to take the exams for an art student. And they said, I'm not an art student. I'm a science student. <laughs> oh. <laughs> How dare you? Right. And, and get over stage, there. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? And at that stage, it was just a bit, it was almost getting late. You know, I'm like, I can't wait another year and, you know, all that. 
Um, so my uncle, one of my uncles was a lecturer, you know, and I tried getting into the mass communication department and I couldn't get it. And he was a lecturer of sociology and he just got me into sociology. And for the past, um, for the past three to four years, recent three to four years, I keep on saying how I spent four years of my life in university wasted. I absolutely hated sociology. That's what I kept on telling myself. I hated learning about people who were dead and men in the theories. <laughs> honestly, like I used to roll my eyes in, in university in classes then when they're making us memorize. And the way they teach us in Africa as well is just a bit different, just memorizing stuff. And it's not really learning. And you're making me memorize a definition of something that I, I didn't see the value in today's world. Uh, but now that I'm in responsible AI, I now see the connection. It's taken me 15 years to realize and appreciate the course that I studied in university and I appreciate the routes that took, because I studied sociology and political science. I absolutely loved public political science. And now that I get so passionate about, you know, social justice and saving people and all that, now I see the connection. But then I didn't. But don't you, don't you think that is just absolutely phenomenal and i think it's also a general thing right and and for me one of the beauties about curiosity in general is you nothing you learn is wasted because you might not have made the connection just yet and it doesn't mean that everything will be connected but the more knowledge you have the more opportunity you have to connect things that may typically not have been connected if even if only in your mind before and it's out of that connections of disparate information that something new arises, new opportunities, you know, innovation, creativity. I find it absolutely fascinating. So, so, so this kind of now took us through the process into your studies, through the course itself, kind of how your experience was, and we've skipped a little to the, you know, forward to today as uh, where what you've learned back then, even though you may not have done it kind of with, you know, 100% passion, it still has its relevance today, 15 years later. And and that's amazing. So, okay. So now you've come through your course, your eyes are still kind of fortunately in your sockets from all the rolling. <laughs> you know, what happens after the degree then? Um, after the degree, um, I had to do um, something we call a youth service corps, uh, which is like a program where every student has to go through in Nigeria. If you want to get a job in Nigeria, um, the government will send you to a different part of the country to serve to serve the country for a year. Which sorry, which university did you go to, by the way? Um, it's called Bayeri University in Kano. So I went to the north. So what happened was. I was down south. Um, my dad passed away. My mom went into some form of depression and she wanted to stay close to her brother. And her brother was was up in the north. So they kind of like discussed it without letting me know, without even seeking my my consent. Like my friends, my high school friends right now, they're still mad. They're like, told you, you just disappeared. Like, you know, <laughs> we went on holiday and the next day I went to Lagos for Christmas holiday with my cousins. And I just heard them talking and the next thing told you you're not coming back to Port Harcourt, you're going to Canada. I'm like, what? I didn't get a chance to tell my friends goodbye. Is this after you actually went to the North that they told you? This was before. Oh. This, is, this is how I moved. <laughs> This is how I moved. I was going to Christmas holidays at my cousin's house in Lagos. I go back to Potakot to carry on with my year five. And from Lagos, they were like, you're not coming back home. You're going straight to Kano. No, honey, it wasn't funny at the time. It was, it was so depressing. So 
like I connected with my high school friends like 22 years later. I joined the, the WhatsApp WhatsApp group, right? And they're like, what happened to you? You just disappeared into thin air. And I suppose no cell phones and the communication wasn't as, as easy, you know, no Facebook or whatever. It's just, oh, Doju's gone. What did I do? <laughs> no, no. I had to write my best friend. <laughs> I had to write my best friend a letter and it took a year for her to get it. Because the postal service in Nigeria doesn't work. It takes, and in those days, it could take like, you're lucky if you get the letter, right? That's, so it could take like a year or two years for you to get, <laughs> it's, it's worse than snail post. <laughs> yes. So she got it like almost 15 months later <laughs> after I sent it. So Amazon Prime, there's like, Amazon Prime, you'll get it in two months. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's no Amazon Prime in Nigeria now, is there? So yeah, even if it was existed, it wouldn't have existed in Nigeria. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's how I ended up in Kano. And then my mom, the university in Portakot said my mom had to still serve them for a year before she can transfer to any other university. So she went back to Portakot and I stayed back. Um, and I had the choice. No, I had the choice to go back to Potaka and, and you know study in university there. But I, I didn't want I didn't want to be with my mom because I'm an only child and she's cuddled me for so long. So even in high school, friends would be like, you know, we're all talking about the universities we're all gonna go, all gonna go to. And when they ask me, I'm like, I'm gonna go far, far away. <laughs> That's what I always said. And uh, to be honest, Kano is so far from Potaka. And when I started, there were no direct flights. You know, if you're traveling, you have to use the night bus. Um, so it could take, it's almost like a 24-hour trip, or if you want to break it, it was really far away. But I mean, in my first year, I had nice friends and kind of and all that. So I didn't want to relocate, you know, it's 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 towards the last year that there were so many religious riots going on and I was getting so scared and I was like, why the heck did I come to this, <laughs> to the States? Um, yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. So, so Kano is a little rural? Kano is, is a bit rural. It's um, dominated by Muslims and very few Christians and they're always having relig- religious fights and killing Christians off. So it was, uh, it's, it was always, uh, I mean, the university campus was fine. But by the time I left, a few years later, they actually burnt my uncle's house. Like it got, they, they started getting into the university campus. Um, so it was a bit of a very tense um, place to study. Um, but in the universities, it was fine. So I, I still had a nice time. I see. Okay. So the campuses were okay, yeah. but it's more within the villages and the, the communities the itself. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Okay. So so what happened then? So when you decided, I'm finished with Kanos now, I'm going to uh, finish your degree in a different university? So I finished my degree in Kano and I, I went back to Port Harcourt to stay with my mom, right? And that, that was my hometown anyway. That's where I grew up in. Um, we're not originally from Port Harcourt. Uh, we're from a different, somewhere else in the south of Nigeria called Edo State. Um, but my parents, you know, were in the University of Port Harcourt, So that's where we had been. I was, I was literally born in the house I was living in. Um, okay. And, and how long after you went back did you then end up coming to the UK? Or what happened in that time? Um... So I got, uh, I had to go for my youth service call, which is the one year service. And I was thrown back to the north, to a different part of the north, where there was no water, no pipe on water, no electricity. Dude. There was no roads, no tarred roads. You had to use a motorbike to get to, it was in the mountains. It was like. Uh, oh, so you can ride a motorbike? No, no, no. You, you get, you, the, the, the man, the man rides the motorbike and you're the passenger on the back of the motorbike. 
And then they had a little, a little like lake in the middle of the road that when it's the rainy season, the water go up and they have to get off the motorbike and walk through the water. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I can't believe I went through all that, but I mean, I like to live. But that's all part of who you are, Toju. I mean, you know, uh, this is not my story, but the thing is, is everything that we have gone through in life makes us who we are today, you know, and Honestly, that part of me. (laughs) You're like, okay, let's put that to the side. (laughs) It was good to a certain extent. I had I had very good time with nature. Um, I had good time to to reflect on my life, to exercise to lose weight. You know, it was quite. But I carried my life with me. I made sure I had a generator. I was the only. I was the second person in the whole village. That had a generator, apart from the king of the. Oh village. wow! Um, <laughs> you know, I yeah. So I, I made sure I had a little life, and then every weekend I was going to the next village that had electricity and I had friends there. Um, so it, it was okay, but I mean, I wouldn't have done it because I kind of had a feeling I wasn't going to use the certificate for anything in Nigeria. And a few years later, I left Nigeria, so I, I probably didn't need to go through that. But to your point, nothing happens without a reason. Um, and I think I just needed that break off, maybe to spend some time self-reflecting and all that, because I do that very constantly now. That's something I've always done is like, you know, in the midst of a, of a chaotic life, just spending time and just thinking about how I'm feeling. Why am I doing this? Am I headed in the right direction? Am I happy? How am I treating the people around me? And I don't do it consciously, but it's something that is always part of me. So probably that one year of quiet led me to that sort of um daily routine that's awesome and and how long between the end of that year and you were saying a few years later you left nigeria so how long between i think about four years um yeah about four years so after that i got a job at my church uh, not for profit um as an admin um secretary uh, because i wanted to work for my for my church at the time um, so I did admin for a year. They were planning at the time a building project. So I was working with the for the project officer for that. And after one year, I knew admin wasn't for me. I found it extremely boring. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Imagine someone who used to act, right? And uh, was a lot into performing arts and uh, making me sit down and and look at spreadsheets and stuff. It wasn't for me. Um, so there was another department in the, in the church that was a bit more exciting that I thought was more exp- exciting. It was the digital media team. Um, and they were doing a lot of shooting of videos and editing of, of the church services and uh, and different programs and get to write a script and all of that. Um, so I, I was able to get a job there and I absolutely loved it. So I did that for a few years. But I just felt I needed to know more. Again, it was this curiosity thing. I felt my skill sets was kind of limited. You know, I had on-the-job training, but I just felt none of us really knew how to use, like, you know, the Adobe Premiers and all those um, software very as, as good as we should. So I have a false understanding that a master's would teach you the how. Um, and I applied for a master's in the UK. Um, and that's how I got to leave. A master's in what, sorry? So I, I wanted a master's in digital media. I first applied to Middlesex and they, they, they rejected my application a good few months afterwards um, <clears throat> because I, I didn't do that in my first degree um, and it was just out of experience. So I, I, for some reason, I just felt this urge to leave Nigeria at that time. Um, so this was, I got the letter from Middlesex in September 
And I just wanted to leave by December. So I started looking for universities that were offering January intakes. And I started ringing up universities and asking them, are you willing to take, you know, um, someone um, now from January? Um, And eventually I found Huddersfield. Um, And Huddersfield was actually starting (laughs) the year I started. I was, we were the first master's students. International Design, Marketing and Communication. That was the name of the course that I did. So that was the closest one that I could find, right? Based on my background and they were willing to accept me. And Um, you did say you wanted to study far, far, far away. So, you know, dick. (laughs) (laughs) That's far, far, far away. (laughs) And my mom told me, because she she always used to say this country is terrible to you. If you go, when you go, go and never come back to this country. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so you still had a support. And, and all, I mean, she's mom, right? She yeah. loves you and did what she thought was best. And Yeah, but I yeah. did plan to go back because I just wanted to learn the skill sets I needed to do my job better. So I, I really, at the time I was leaving, I told everyone, I'm just going for a year and I'm going to come back. And some of my friends were like, told you the way I look at you. Yeah, never no ways. So, so what was it like then settling in Huddersfield from Port Port Arcos? Yeah, it was tough. <laughs> is it the being away from your family, being in a different culture? Is is it that kind of being in a new place thing, or what? What was it? I think it, for me, it was the cultural integration of like even just understanding what I'm saying. Um and accepting me as I, as I am. So like the students in my in my um, student accommodation, like the way we do things in Nigeria is, is a bit different. So, you know, we, we tend to eat plantains a lot, right? And plantains, you tend to fry them. And when you fry them, you put them in, you put the, the frying pan, you don't throw away the oil because you can reuse it. And you put the frying pan in the oven, right? And we don't tend to use the oven a lot. Like if we want to bake, you know, we, we might use the oven if we have gas. And if not, we kind of like put it in sand. So you put you can you can bake with sand, right? So you put the, the the tin in sand, and then you can put it over over a little stove and bake it. Um, but I didn't realize that over here, you turn on the oven first, right? If you want to bake, or you know, you want to put your pizza in, and you don't check because there should be nothing in the oven. Oh. Um, so I got a, a note from one of the girls because they kept on turning the oven, and there was oil in it, and it was almost burning up. And then the smoke. <laughs> <laughs> but what I found annoying was no one came up to me to tell me hey don't do that he said i'll get a note underneath my door and i just felt that very irritating but then i realized that that's the culture it's it's not confrontational it's slightly different you know rather than tell me to my face you'll give me a note but i just felt that insulting because i see you in the corridor and we say hi and we exchange some pleasantries like even if it's for for 30 seconds why don't you bring it up like you know um so those are the little things or you know back in nigeria if you want to use the bathroom we don't really have public toilet so we have to um, go to the bank. The banks then always used to have the toilets that were clean. And then I get to the NatWest bank here in the Huddersfield and I'm trying to open a bank account and I ask the lady, can I use the toilets? I know, oh my goodness, I needed to see the look she gave me. <laughs> I, was like, I was thinking to myself, I just asked a simple question. I was like, oh no, you can't use the toilets here. You have to go over to McDonald's or something. I was like, okay. You know, so it's those little things. <laughs> It's those little things, but because I grew up in the, in the UK for a few years, it wasn't wasn't a total shock to me. It was, it was almost like coming back home. I saw the trains and I remembered the, the tube in London and all of that. So it wasn't totally different. And I made friends in Huddersfield as well. 
Because that is for for anyone you speak to generally, you know, those first few years from coming from another country and settling in and getting used to those little nuances can be a little bit of a challenge, right? And some people deal with it better than others. But I find that the process still of moving from another country and coming into a, a, a new environment absolutely impacts you as well. And it's an important kind of part of anyone's journey who has immigrated somewhere. Um, do, do you find that you personally have become, uh, I guess, more enriched or impacted by that process? Definitely. It's, um, it's always um, an advantage to change, you know, to relocate and go somewhere else. You, you, you learn a lot about the different cultures and you get to integrate. And it helps with your, with your overall development, right? Um, because you've learned to adjust. You've learned to, to drop a few things and adopt a few things. You've learned to see how... Still be you, but, but integrate. Still be you, but integrate into that society. Yeah. You learn the nuances. You learn the differences in the cultures. You choose what you prefer, which is what happened to me. And that's why after two months, I said I wasn't going back to Nigeria. And so, you know, <laughs> I went back on my, on my words. Um, so it is, it, it's something that, you know some of the issues that we face in the world today, like all the racist issues and stuff like that. I just feel a lot of these people have not been exposed to different cultures. They've never left their hometown. They've never really traveled out of their country. And if they have, it's just to some little spot where, you know, it's very touristy. They didn't get to integrate. They've not lived anywhere, you know, so they're not used to seeing other people that look different for them and sound different from them. You know, so it's all about education. So just relocating is a big educational process. And it's just making sure that, you focus on the right things when you do it and don't just focus on the negatives because that's what I noticed. So a lot of Nigerians down in the UK was more about mourning about the visas and the problems and how hard it is to get a job. And I had to make a deliberate um, conscious effort not to hang around those sort of people because I just felt I'm not going to progress oh, completely. Um, in my life in this country if I keep on, if these are the kind of people. Yeah. And it's just going to be harder anyway. It's yeah. like, look, you've got to get through this, right? So right. make it as pleasant as possible. And whatever the challenges are, just sort it and go get on with it, right? That's it. Um, and, 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 and you find that, anyway, not, not to go too deep down that, but, but you do find that, you know, people choose either to go and find people that are similar to them and kind of stay the same way they are, just in a different place, and others go, you know, there is more to see here, more to learn here. So let me integrate and let me be a better me. Because you cannot say that 100% everything you do and say and where you come from exactly. is the only way to go about things. And that's kind of the general concept of curiosity as well is, is I want to explore, I want to learn, you'll keep what you what you like, you'll discard what you don't. But collectively, that process enriches you exactly. and makes you a better you, you know, and 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 the the last thing, sorry, just again, someone something a previous guest said is he measures himself against himself yesterday, essentially, you know, and it takes away this pressure of measuring yourself against other people or what others have achieved, you know, and and just to add to that, also, you know, the lack of understanding of what they've gone through in order to get where they are today, you know, put all that aside, right, and simply go, am I better at X? today than I was yesterday yeah you know um so I, I love I really love that and it's actually stuck by me quite a bit but so here we are um and Huddersfield and what what happens after that degree well how do you get into your first job what was it 
and and kind of take us to that journey from then uh, to kind of where we are now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I graduated with uh, international design, marketing, and communications. Um, I mean, I literally almost failed my course as well because I hadn't studied in the UK before, and I came with a Nigerian way of just memorizing everything. Um, and after my second semester, I realized, okay, memorizing everything doesn't work here, you know. So I was able to put in my best in my thesis. I didn't get the most uh, supportive of supervisors, unfortunately. So I was doing a few mistakes, and I had to lean on my friends who were already studying masters as well in the UK, who kind of like helped me. So I think my thesis, I, I literally got an A in it, so it was it was good enough, and I was able to like nice. you know save myself from failing. Right um, in the last minute, I just realized, you know. Doing, learning about a different way of doing things, a different educational system in a year is really a, a very short time. Let me ask you just a couple of questions there quickly, right? Is is this there's two things that come to mind? One, um, did you speak a lot of English back home? Firstly, yeah, Nigeria is, a, is an English speaking country, and I grew up in a lecturer's. To be fair, I don't even know how to speak my language. Like my friends tell me shame on me, and I'm like, don't tell me shame on me. It's not my fault. I'm not going to teach myself my language. My parents never really wanted to teach. They were from two different cultures anyway, like two different tribes. But they spoke one collective language, Yoruba, which is, you know, the, the, the language spoken in, in Lagos and right, right in the, in the um, west um, of Nigeria. Um, but anytime friends came, they were like, you know, does Toja speak any language? Dad would be like, no, she's an English girl. She's an English. He always brought me up like an English lady. You know, the Nigerian culture of food that we eat with our hands, I had to use fork and knife. So to talk to AA, I can't use my hands. My friends laugh at me. They say, you're not Nigerian. Just go away. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so. So you didn't have the challenge of learning within your course in a language that wasn't no. native to you. That was no. okay. But I, but I had to work on my accent, though. Of course, yes. Because I just got irritated with, say again, sorry. Uh, say that again, sorry. And so just, did you have a strong Nigerian accent? I did. I did when I came. And I had to sit down. I mean, it's not like I did any serious, um, but sometimes I'll watch t- TV and I'll just repeat with the, with the British inflection and intonation. I was like, well, I used to speak the, with this accent before, so you know, let me try again. Cool, and and it's about clarity, I guess. It's all about communication. Then at that point, right? Is do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that's it for me. That that's what's important. Yes. So when I speak to Nigerians, I go straight into the Nigerian accent, you know, and uh, and again because um, an actress actress by heart, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes without intentionally doing it, my accent tends to um, change depending on who I'm speaking with. So you kind of like adjust to, slightly adjust to whoever I'm speaking with. A quick shout out to our sponsor, Heights. In their words, Heights makes smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help us take care of our brains so it can take care of us. I came across Heights when I set off on a trip and surprisingly it's still going where I wanted to take better care of mind, body, and soul. So along with doing more exercise, drinking less alcohol, drinking more water, I wanted to be intentional about doing things that would help my mind be sharper. Long story short, I came across Heights and found the short, snappy podcast episodes with qualified experts quite enlightening. But as my wife would no doubt agree, I've always been a huge skeptic when it comes to supplements and never felt compelled to take it regularly. Even my daughter got involved in trying to make sure I take the ones we have at home, (laughs) but not even that helped. Yet, here I was, receptive to new things, so I took the plunge with an initial 3-month subscription, and I'm still a customer today, and feeling great for it. 
Now I have no doubt that how I feel is as a result of all the changes I made, but I am convinced that the supplement is playing its part. So if you want to give it a go too, wander over to yourheights.com and use a Curious Life 10 at the checkout for a 10% discount. Whether it's going from one language to another the, or, or a strong accent to a different one, it is really all about communication. That, that's all it's about, right? And if, yeah. if you can talk to each other and understand what you're communicating, then happy days. Um, the other thing, I, and, and this is more of a general thing, but I find that those moments when you're in the deep water and you need to make a conscious decision that I now have to put in the effort to make sure that I am successful at this. I find those moments are, are the things that not only help you pass, but also the trajectory of having to put in this additional effort helps you to surpass. Is this something that you found not just in that moment, but also maybe in other moments in life? Yeah, I think, I think if you do it in just one moment, um, you'll find out that it's something you repeat constantly in life. Um, it's not something that you just do once and never do again. Um, but again, I still feel it's really connected to self-reflection um, because I could have kept on going in my course and keep on getting the the not-so-great grades. Um, a lot of it was teamwork as well, which wasn't working well. And I wasn't used to teamwork. I was just used to working on my own. I, I excel very well when I work with myself, right? Um, but being able to just try to, like, examine the status quo look back to the to the recent past and wonder what what did you do what could you have done differently what did you do that led you to this path what could you have done differently to lead you to another path and what are the desirable um results that you're looking for um and for me that was it right i wanted to do well in my masters and i learned that okay my 10 years of learning you know, my educational background from Nigeria doesn't adapt to this culture. What do I need to do differently? Um, but by the time I got to that, it was I was already in my third semester. So I knew I had my thesis. So that, that was the only time, you know, I just and it's not like my mom was gonna break my head to say, you know, you failed or anything. I've just never failed before, like, you know, crisis. And I just couldn't believe that I'll come here and fail. Like that's always been my thing, is like, you know. I just, I've never, though, even in my university in Canada, because I studied two different degrees, you know, combined honours, my my political science papers were always being misplaced and my sociology papers were always being misplaced. So by the time I was meant to graduate, they couldn't find any of my papers. They were not sure if I was meant to graduate or not. It was mad. And it was a horrible experience for me for four years. And sometimes they'll tell me you failed. And I was like, no, that's not true. I can't believe, even if I hated that course, I, you know, and I didn't know much about it. I still can't believe, how can I go from an A, a B, a C, a D, an E to an F? No, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's always been my, part of my mindset and my mantra is, you know, you, you're not meant to do this to fail. It's okay to fail. Like that's that's something that a lot of leaders say and I still say it as well. It's okay to fail in a certain thing because you learn from it. Um, but you're not working to fail. You're not planning to fail, and especially it's not when objective. yeah, yeah exactly. and especially when you're in an educational system, you're going through through a course. Definitely, you're not. You're not. I don't think at that stage it's okay to fail. If you fail, that's fine. Learn from it and move on, but do not aim to fail. Okay, so so now you've 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 passed the course. You finished in Huddersfield, and take us from there, kind of into your first job. 
uh, and into how you kind of entered the working world um, and and from there. Yeah, so I finished my course and because uh, I did digital media in Nigeria and I did a bit of graphic design, I wanted to carry on in graphic design. And the, the course had three different topics, right? Design, marketing and communication. So I realized that I told myself I can get into any of these three different fields. Um, even if I wasn't taught anything about those three different fields in the course. Um, so I started applying for design jobs and I was just applying for anything. I didn't even know the difference between a director's role and an entry level role. I was just a monster applying for anything and reads reads Um And I wasn't getting any feedback. Um, and then when I actually did some search on graphic design concepts and graphic design work, you know, and I needed to build my portfolio and stuff. I saw really good work. <laughs> and I was like, okay, there's no way I'm going to stand a chance with these guys. These guys studied in, in, in university. They know what it is. I just learned, you know, from the side, cut and paste. You know, the way I even used to use Photoshop was just like cut and paste and put it there. I never really knew the elements of design. Um, so I was like, I'm not going to deceive myself and keep on chasing this route, right? Um, it's not going to work. So at that same time, I started getting calls for marketing jobs um, because I made sure I put my CV everywhere. At some stage, um, I actually got an email from these organizations that will want to improve your CV. And they told me, hey, I saw your CV on you know, X website. We noticed that your CV doesn't have X, Y, Z. We do recommend you should have X, Y, Z. Why don't you give us a call for us to take it further? And I was like, I ain't giving you a call. And I just took all the recommendations. I mean, they didn't give me everything, but they hinted at some things. And I was able to just do that, look for templates of CVs online and change my CV. And after that, I started getting calls for jobs. And I started getting calls for marketing jobs. And I was like, I don't have any marketing background, but I know that digital media and graphic design are all transferable skills into marketing and my my uh, master's title has it. Why not? Let's give it a go. Um, so I my first job was from um, an apprenticeship website um, that was very common in the UK, but I can't remember what it's called now. And I, was, I worked for an organization that was a not-for-profit for youth in Birmingham. Um, and I did that for a year or two. Now, it was meant to be a market. It was advertised as a marketing job. It ended up being a supposedly business development job, but I was doing everything from um, arranging events to the decorator of the events to the security person at the events, collecting tickets. And I did that for a couple of years, and it literally ran me down. My health my health went down. I was falling sick all the time. I was working to like midnight sometimes. It was a two-people organization. We just had a director who wasn't doing much work. When I started off, it was two, and I was supposed to be the third person. But a few months in, one of the girls left. Um, so they were very ambitious. They had high goals, but they didn't have the money and the funding. And it was owned by Jamaican. So um, um, into the second year, I had to quit. Um, and then after that, I did a lot of internships. So I, I volunteered and I went back into like graphic design, whatever was available, really. You know, no expense paid. Um, I just needed to build up my CV. That was, for me, it was building up the experience on my CV. So I did a bit of freelance work as well. I joined something called Elans. I think now it's been changed to Upwork. Um, I did some newsletter templates for some guy in Australia that I never met, you know, and was being paid by the hour. And I bumped up my CV. Um, and after that, I was able to get another job um, for an Australian company that was in Birmingham. They quit like three months after I started. 
<laughs> which was bad. Um, and eventually I got another job for another not-for-profit as a marketing assistant. So, so how did all this get you to Google then? Uh, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm getting okay, there. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, I got this. This is job fascinating. As, it, it is interesting, right? I got this job as a marketing assistant in a not-for-profit in, uh, in Birmingham. I did that for a year. I absolutely loved it. And then my husband uh, wanted to leave his co- current company at the time and applied for roles in Birmingham. Um, but the role that he got, you know, when they were offering it to him, they were like, oh, by the way, it's in Dublin. And I was like, what? <laughs> Who, where, how? Like, what? I was absolutely gutted, you know. But I didn't want to say, hey, I'm going to stay in Birmingham, you go to Dublin. And I was like, well, we'll go together. So he went three months before I did. And um, what we did was, so um, they got a career coach for me. It was a great company, an American company. They got a career coach and all that. So I told the lady that if I'm going to Dublin, I'm going to aim for one of the tech companies. You know, either I'm going to work for Facebook or Google. I was just talking, though. I was like, I don't even have the, I didn't even know what they want in those sort of companies. And she was like, yeah, go for it. So what we did was we sent my CV across even before I came. So he came in three months before I did. He had an agency, Adeco, that was working for his company. And he sent my CV to Adeco. And at some stage, it was like, I understood. I'm told you there's a job in Google um, for a contractor. Um, should I send my CV, your CV across? I was like, yeah, I was thinking to myself, they'll then. never take me anyway. Like, <laughs> go on, whatever. <laughs> and she did. And the next thing she was like, hey, the lady wants to interview. I was like, what? Um, and then she came back to say, oh, no, they found somebody else. And I was like, yeah, I kind of knew it, right? They're not going to take me. Um, and after that, and I was still in Birmingham where all the conversations were going on. A week later, she was like, hey, she actually still wants to talk to you. Um, and then I moved to Dublin. So I literally got the job in Dublin with Google three days after I arrived in Dublin. Um, I arrived in Dublin on a Friday. I had the interview with the lady, a phone call interview. On the Monday, it was 10 minutes. It was literally a 10-minute phone call. This doesn't happen to everyone in Google. Like, my story is unique. So, yeah. <laughs> But it was a 10-minute phone call. And immediately after, the Adeco lady called me to say, well, how did it go? I was like, yeah, I think it was went well. She was like, yeah, she wants to take you. And I started my job a week after that's awesome and that was a contractor role right so i still needed to convert to a full-time employee so doing what um so i was i was a dynamic um marketing specialist which is basically i was a specialist working on one of the google ads products and helping clients implement the pixel the tagging and all of that on the website so i wasn't doing actually doing the implementation but we guide them through it um, so it's just like, you know, if you want to use Google ads, there are some, there are some complicated Google ads that you need to put some extra tagging on your websites. And we're just supposed to guide them to make sure that the tagging was firing properly and they were actually receiving the, um, the different accounts, user accounts that they wanted. Okay, cool. So now you're in Google, contractor role. Yes. How do you get to where you are today? Yeah. So, um, everyone that's, that's a contractor role in Google wants to stay in, like it's, it's, I've never heard of anyone. Competitive. I don't think it's competitive. Google is just so attractive, right? Of course um, it is, yeah. And, <laughs> and when I joined at the time, you know, they were still having a sales conference where we all go to Vegas <laughs> for a week, right? Free paid. And there were all sorts of things going on. You see the pictures and you're like, this is amazing. We used to have Christmas presents at the time. Um, and the Christmas presents could be a phone. A tablet, like you know, so it was so attractive. We'll have the Christmas parties, which still happens apart from COVID. Aside COVID, you know, you have summer parties, glamorous, um, and then of course in the office as well. You know, you have the free food, the free drinks, the free snacks, and it's all techy. And you know, remembering my background, right? I'm originally a science student, 
I've never liked to work in a stuck-up company where you wear suits. That has never been my thing. I always appreciate a company where I can go in my jeans, like, you know, be relaxed. And Google ticked all these boxes for me. Um, so, of course, and of course, I was kind of like one foot in. So I wanted to stay back. So what I did was immediately my one-year role was over. Before it was over, I just started looking for suitable roles I could apply for in Google. And I did find some suitable roles. It was all in the same team. I just applied for two and I got one. Um, and that's how I got in. And after that, it's been a journey. Like I've changed like at least three different roles. Um, the most exciting one though is the one I'm doing now for me. It's like, how did I cross? Because now I'm on a different side of the pond. I'm working in the research team. You know, it's totally different from the sales team. I've always been in sales, even if I was a specialist. So tell us that journey. I mean, you mentioned it earlier. It was curiosity and, and yeah. just going to, to, to a session that got you interested. No. Take us through that journey. Yeah. How did you get into this role? Right. So um, I think maybe I was in my, I always have a two-year time frame in a role or in an organization. Like Google is the only company I've worked for for this long. I've been seven years in Google now. I never last that long. Um, although in the past it wasn't intentional, like either the company shuts down or I relocate or something, apart from, you know, the first job that I had to leave. Um but yeah, I always have this, after two years, I get uncomfortable. I feel I've learned all I need to learn. I need a challenge in my life. Like I can't, I'm never someone that just sits and become and stays comfortable for a long period of time. It has to be challenging enough for me to learn. And once I learn, I'm okay to be there for just a very short time to like, you know, exhibit the skills that I've learned but after that I need something more I need to keep going I've always had that thing I used to wonder like what's wrong with you like can't you just settle you meet people that have been in their roles for 10 years and they're like gods on those roles right they're very good yeah. at it you know but, I'm but there's not, nothing more to learn more. <laughs> and I always just I want to learn I want to grow like I I believe in you know if you're living in life don't just live to exist live to bring live for a purpose live to bring some value to your life and to other people's lives um, and sometimes you get carried away, especially when you're working in a comfortable job, a comfortable company, you know, it's paying your bills, you're able to go on vacation and the holidays and all that. You can get a house. You just settle and um, you're not ready to to take that risk anymore. You're not ready to, to break. So I, I went through those different hoops in my current in Google, right, where I was thinking, am I happy where I am? Again, back to the self-reflection, you know, I know there's more I can bring to the table in my role, but because of the number of people on my team, I can't, you know, it's a very big company. So you can't bring all your skill sets into, into, and I, I did have, I did struggle even before getting into Google, like in roles that I applied for in the UK, where they just put you in a box, you know, it's either you're a graphic designer, you can't be anything else. And I'm not that sort of person. I'm more creative. I'm more of a generalist where I learn a little bit of this and that, and I bring them all in. And so Google for me was like home because I could see that there were so many different teams you could work for. But even in that one team, you could bring in your website design skills into it and build a website. And after that, you can just do some consulting. And after that, you can do anything. And sometimes you can create your, your role, you know, depending on the team you're working with, you can create the sort of role you want to work for. So I love that. I love that part of it. Um, but I got to a stage where I was itchy again, you know, I wanted more. 
I didn't want to leave my role at the time because I knew there were still some things I could learn. And it was a great role, you know, product lead for EMEA. So for overseeing a region right between sales and, uh, and the product managers, you know, so a sweet spot for me where I get to satisfy my techie side at the same time, you know, my business side as well is being, is being satisfied. I'm talking to customers and all that. Um, but I knew I needed more. I think I got into that stage where I just, I was just, I just needed to know what way, what routes to take that would fulfill the purpose that I felt I needed to achieve, which I didn't know at the time. Um, and um, I, I started thinking again, well, I did want to be an actress. You know, I missed that part. I didn't tell you that part that, you know, by the time I finished my high school, I told my mom, hey, but can I be an actress? Probably I should study theater arts. And she was like, over her dead body. <laughs> <laughs> like no way they're all prostitutes <laughs> <laughs> and i was like well this is not worth the fight like you know there's yeah. no point finding about this so I, I i ditched that idea so i came back to thinking about what do you like to do you know and i and i and i um i quite admire robin with her pantomiming and stuff um <laughs> that's my oh, so you do do you do the whole uh... no i didn't do it I, I wanted to but i was like there's no way like i'm incorporate you know i don't have the time i'm a mom and i was traveling a lot before the pandemic for work and i was like i don't have the time and then i, I looked at the the one that i had and there was a little pantomime group where i lived um and they were all they were all caucasians there was <laughs> There was no person of color, and I was like, it will be so hard to integrate here. Um, so I was like, what transferable skills can I bring to my current life, um, but still have that acting thing? And I always felt I was called to stage. Like, I always had that thing in my head that you're called to stage. So I was like, hey, I can be a public speaker. Um, and I was like, that's like acting, right? You're bringing a story and you're acting it out. And I was like, okay, what can I speak on? And that was where there was a problem. So when I attended this, this course i found it so fascinating i couldn't what was it what was the course it was just machine learning machine learning for salespeople. just explaining what machine learning was yeah right and what was what was it what was it that that attracted you so what is there anything that stood out for me it was just how you know you could use data to tell a story but then the system telling the story makes up the story itself. It arrives at its own conclusions. Like you're teaching something, you impute it, you know, either you do supervised learning or unsupervised or reinforcement learning. You teach it something and reinforcement for me was so funny. It's almost like a kid, you know, if it does well. So what reinforcement learning means in machine learning yeah, is, you, you know, reward it. you reward it. And I'm like, if it does well, you actually give it some cookies. <laughs> I just found it so fascinating. And I like the fact that I can, you could just mix reality with tech and come up with a real solution yeah the the, the power and the, the 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 just the opportunity in what technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning bring but but, but you know with all of that power with all of that that kind of i guess sheer brute force um it still doesn't have the cognitive capability of a human being. And I think it's, it's, it's when you marry the two that you do derive at better, faster decisions. So how do we go from the course then? Right. To yeah, so, so I attend the course and I hear about this and I'm like, I want to learn more. Right? And uh, I started reading more about machine learning and AI. And then I came across AI for social goods. And I was like, you mean AI could have the potential to cure cancer? I was like, seriously? You mean it can be used to solve the world's problems today? Why is no one speaking about this? That was my that was my first thing. Why why did I learn about AI 
from a course. No one knows about it. And then the more I started researching, the more I realized AI is right in our faces. It's in our phones today. You're using Facebook, you're using Instagram, you're using LinkedIn, the new, the personalized news feeds. He's using AI. You're unlocking your phone with your face or with your eyes. That's all using AI. You know, you're speaking to your Alexa or Google Assistant. That's all using AI. If you're using Nest or Echo or whatever to to use to, you know, turn on your thermostats at home, it's using AI. And I'm like, I don't think people realize this. So um, I started putting my hands up to speak. Um, Google had a few speaking opportunities at the time. And I was like, I need to spread the word, right? We can do AI for social good. We need more developers doing AI for social good. Now, along along the line, I started getting more speaking ups. And along the line, I was asked to speak about buyers and AI. In, internal to Google or? External. They were external. Um, the, the first one was Google's Developers Festival. Um, and I came down to London to, to speak to some developers. Um, and, you know, it was hard for me because it wasn't my background. And I felt... At the time, I, I had this notion that for you to do AI, you have to be a computer scientist. And it's now I'm realizing, okay, on the responsible AI and ethical AI part, this is where social sciences make a difference. They come to play. Um, and it's taken me a journey to realize, okay, my social science background is actually really relevant in what I'm doing now. Um, and it probably just registers why I'm so passionate about it. Um, so... Um, Yes, I started speaking and I got invited to speak on biases in, in AI, which I never really heard about it before, racial bias in AI. And then I started researching on it. And, and what I found struck me, it was, it was uh, mind-blowing and depressing, right? You, you get to see stats that say, you know, um, there are more people of color dying from um, breast cancer than Caucasians. But research shows that 50% of Caucasian women are meant to die from breast cancer. And I'm like, what is missing here, right? And they get to hear about finance and the financial systems and how they would, you know, give you a lower loan or a lower mortgage because you're a person of color because the system has assigned you to a certain social economic status and certain neighborhoods, um, areas and postcodes and to give you less I experienced that. I was trying to look for a mortgage and what they were offering me was so tiny. And I was like, this doesn't look right. And we questioned it and questioned it. And, you know, and when I realized that, I was like, no, this ain't right. Because for me, the sovereign thought is AI is, is being adopted at a very fast and alarming pace. There is no, no one is monitoring it. Well, you know, we, we have a lot of reports from McKinsey and you know all the different research companies. But, Anyone can use AI. Any startup can adopt AI. No one, they're not registering it to say, hey, I'm going to use AI for my systems. And all this amount of bias is being fed into it. And, you know, you, you mentioned about data and the, and the bias and the data, but we're realizing it's not just the data. Even the models and the way you, you compress the models could lead to further bias. And even if you do a lot of testing on your data before using it to get rid of bias. There's still no guarantee that your data is 100% unbiased. And you get to do some model compression te techniques and you know do some other things with your model, it could lead to bias. And we're even also realizing that you know security and um, privacy techniques, which is part of responsible AI, could actually disparately um, affect fairness, which is bias. So it's still a very, um, I still say, I still say it's a very niche and new area because there's more research going on, but it's even just being aware of the overlying principles of making sure that whatever 
technologies that you provide is not, not sending any harm or risk to individuals. People are not being arrested wrongfully. People are not losing, you know, not being able to get jobs wrongfully. Like, you know, there's a recruitment tool that got called off recently because it was favoring male CVs over women, female CVs. And no one is thinking about the psychological or emotional impacts. I can imagine if it was me that kept on applying for jobs, even if I'm competent and I don't get a job, it affects me psychologically, it affects my confidence. And no one is thinking of all of that, right? So, so it's quite important. <laughs> because, I mean, everything you're mentioning is so extremely important for the advancement of AI in the real world and real use applications, right? Um, in the context of fairness. How do you take what you learn and then apply that at Google or uh, indeed beyond? Right. So um, that's how I ended up in the team that I'm working with. So um, I was in the travel team. Um, I'm actually on a six-month um, assignment um, on the team, but I'm hoping to, to stay back. But I was in the travel team, and I started doing all this work on AI by the side, right? So it didn't quite correlate with travel. Um and um, at some stage, you know, there was a Google newsletter, an internal newsletter, and it showed like three amazing women that are doing amazing things in AI. And it showed three women. And, and I thought about joining the team before, but I was like, I don't have the background. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the experience. They're not going to take me. Like, don't bother. But one of the roles was a program manager role. And I was like, this I can do, right? This is transferable skills from what I'm currently doing as a product lead. This is what, actually what I like. I'm not I'm not a pure engineer. Um, I tried coding and I absolutely bits my head in it does my head in I I love it but I hate it if I miss that you know that little eye and that semicolon and it doesn't work it just it makes me mad like why is it not working and I'm not patient enough to go through and go through the code so I'm always in that in-between spot and I realized again you know to my initial point of how why are there not people talking about AI and stuff I just felt you know translating what AI means and the issues with it to the common man and to everyone else who is non-techie, it's hard. And the re- don't expect the research scientists to do it because they will speak the research jargon, right? That's not understandable. So you still need someone in between. I, I see myself as a bit of a messenger in between. But anyway, um, I reached out to that team and I said, look, this is all the work I'm doing outside. I'm part of Women in AI Ireland. You know, I'm doing a lot of talks. I, at the time, I was planning to write a few research papers and stuff. And I was like, can I do a 20% role? Can I do something with you guys? And in Google, it's, it's, it's really encouraged, you know, if you have the bandwidth, take on something else and, you know, you can take a 20%. So the 20% was carved for me. And then the next thing I heard was, hey, I actually have a six-month um, role available. And I was like, definitely. Um, so what I'm doing now is still program management. So it's just making sure, like, the research science teams are talking amongst themselves because now we're all we're all split, um, making sure that we're being able to investigate a little bit more on what's going on on responsible AI and just advance advance the industry and work with other industries and the and, understanding, and the understanding of it. I guess, and yeah, it's it's all a, it's all a learning curve. It's all a, a process, but that's that's where we're headed. I take that as uh, you know, I, I guess in some way aligned to this concept of data literacy that. I'm pretty passionate about. And and by data literacy, I mean that the majority of people needs to be comfortable with the language of data. And I, I kind of see this as something that's in parallel to a more common understanding of ethics in AI. I think actually, as you've spoken about it just now, the importance of having the ethics alongside the understanding of data and how to use data is actually imperative. So with that said, uh, and, and we, we draw into a close just now, one of the questions I always ask 
guests is is an extension of what we have just been speaking about, right? The world accepts that data is important, uh, not just for competitive advantage, but indeed for survival of organizations, right? Um, and my belief is that as a collective uh, of data professionals, everybody um, that's involved in the data ecosystem, it is our collective responsibility to ensure that the value we get from data is scaled um, and realized essentially at scale. So what are you doing and what will you continue to do? Or what do you see yourself doing in the next, you know, months or years to advance that cause? Yeah, the little fireball of me. Um, <laughs> um, there are a few things. Um, I'm part of Women in AI in Ireland, and that's really towards driving diversity in AI. Focus on women, but I think we're expanding it now. So that's one That's one thing. Um, I'm currently in the process of writing a novel. Um, again, I see, like I said, I see myself as a messenger to, to bring AI to the rest of the world and just let people understand the value of AI, but beyond that, understand the implications and the challenges that are being faced. So don't have enough regulations out there. The EU is, is actually leading the pace on regulations, but beyond the EU, you know, in the in the US, you just have a few states that you know, like ban facial recognition, and it's, it's a slow process. But a lot of lives have been impacted before we get to these. And even in the Netherlands, there was a case where um, um, the government were using AI to discriminate against against people from marginalized backgrounds without intentionally doing it. So they're going to use AI for for fraud um, social welfare prediction. Um, and it was just based on people who were living in certain um, neighborhoods and they were saying that they were going to use them, that the people were, were, were claiming social welfare illegally, but they had no proof just because they lived in a certain uh, neighborhood, you know. And uh, thankfully, um, a, a lawyer won the case against the government, and that's like the first precedence. But a lot of governments are using AI right now. They're using it in so many ways that we're not aware of, and people don't know. And, you know, part of why they won the case in the Netherlands is because the people came together, right, and they had to say, this is wrong, and they fed, you know, they worked with a lawyer, and the lawyer was able to file a case. So we're going to see more of this. Um, my concern is is the people that get affected, the lives that get affected before we arrive at these conclusions. And it's going to take a while. And um, a lot of companies are adopting AI. So we don't know how many AI systems we'll have to look at at the end of the day. And no one is looking at them, right? There are a lot of data sets that have been recalled um, because um, um, they, were, they were rooted in bias, but they have been used for like about four years before they got recalled. Um, so for me, uh, I want to compile a novel um, with all these stories. Um, of course, it's going to be a novel, but at the end of the day, it's, it's going to send a message to the policymakers, to, to everyone who's not in tech, even to the tech companies, of the responsibilities and the future of AI if we don't solve the challenges today what the world might look like in the future. Um, at the same time, I'm working at, uh, with a few other folks to come up with an AI ethics course, uh, mainly aimed at executives in, in um, organizations, so for CEOs and for product managers and data scientists, for them to understand you know, what responsible AI actually looks like, how you know, the world is looking at it, um, broken out by fairness and transparency, explainability, um, privacy, security, safety, and robustness. Um, and accountability and, you know, as, as it goes on. So that that's currently on the table as well. Um, also working with someone else to come up with, um, again, it's all within the educational animal awareness um, side of things. So working with someone else to come up with an AI training program for um, young kids in the UK 
to um, uh, like um, offenders and uh, juveniles and uh, you know they've been gang leaders and they're all being taken to prison and all of that. So some some form of course to just give them a skill set that can take them into jobs. Um, and I'm thinking of an AI app as well, educational AI app for kids, um, aged between four to 22 year old, um, kids and young adults, because you know the future says that AI is going to displace jobs, uh, and we know that it's coming. Um, and that's another thing I'm going to work on as well is what jobs do we actually identify as going to be displaced? What skill sets do people need to learn? You know, we know that some of these there's going to be a revolution. We're right now in a tech revolution. We know that. Someone had predicted 40% of, of jobs will be displaced, right? How can we reduce that number to 20%? We know jobs will still be displaced, but we need to reskill people, right, to do the relevant jobs. And I see that it's all varying towards tech. We need more labelers and annotators who will work on the data sets, right? We probably need more people who are going to work on the data centers and work with the fibers and stuff. So it's identifying what these are and working with governments as well so that they can provide these opportunities. We're skilling the teachers. We need to bring AI into schools. Students need to know what AI is. Students need to know what computer science is. We cannot have a doctor in the next 20 years who has no idea of technology. It's not going to work. A doctor will need to be skilled with tech, right, with computer science to a certain degree, even if he's not a, a, a technical profi- professional um, or doesn't have a technical mind. So these are the different things I'm thinking of um, and, you know, seeing how I can bring them into Google as well and all of that. Okay. So so I guess if, if is it fair to say then that it's about awareness and and influencing regulation for more permanent change? Everyone has a part to play. Everyone has a part to play. The research scientists need to think about their research, right, and the impact is... It's, it's playing, you know, you come up with, you see recent pages about pseudoscience where, you know, they just label someone just because their eyebrow is, is up to a certain angle. They just label that person as a criminal just because eyebrow, there's no data. There's no facts that that person is a criminal or has criminal tendencies. So the research scientists have to, there, there needs to be some form of responsibility on their side as well. You know, with the conferences that are taken on, the papers that are being accepted and are being published, then we need some more regulations there, right? We don't want to stifle innovation. At the same time, we want to make sure that what's coming out, because the problem is once these papers are published, people adopt these these different thought processes and work on them, and something is out. And so that's the first thing. Then we still have the policymakers, and we still have the organizations that are working on these different AI systems, and we have everybody else. You and I, you know, people who are being impacted, we need to know what the impact is. If I'm using my phone, I need to know why, where is my data going? Is it my data? Are you really allowed to take my data and just sell it off to a third party? You know, if, if my house address is on that data, that means my life is at risk. People can come in and rob me or even kill me. I don't know. Right. We need more regulations on that. So the organizations as well need to take responsibility and the policymakers. I think it's just a whole wide spectrum, you know, it's not just for one person, but, you know, we need to educate the policymakers. People need to be educated about the impacts of what they're using. And with one voice, I think if we can all come together and come up with an ethical AI framework that is global, like the way we have WHO, I feel we need something like that for AI, right? You know, a global aliens. I know the World Economic Forum is working on something as well, but we need more of that to just prevent these problems from happening but still allow innovation to flow yeah that's true okay cool oh amazing thank you (laughs) so so i've got one very last question for you um 
And I'm a lover of music, right? And music is, is, is you know, a, a big part of me, but I am no musician. So I'm no creator of music. Um, but question is this, um, is there an artist and a song that you would call out as memorable or that has had some form of impact in your life or, you know, for any reason that you want to share with our listeners? Um, and if possible, also the reason why. Right. Um, I'm a lover of music as well. So I think with each stage of my life, the songs change, right? <laughs> so I can't remember beyond last year, but I know um, The Blessing by Elevation Worship is one big one for me. Um, it's kind of like, it's just like a prayer. And that kind of like um, comforted me during the pandemic, you know, made me know that, you know, me, my life and my family life, you know, hopefully will be secure and we'll be protected from the virus. And it was a comforting song for me. And I love, I love hearing it. And another song is um, Diamonds by Rihanna. So shine I just love the first few lines, shine bright like a diamond. For me, it's like, girl, go girl, you know, keep on shining, let your, your light shine and just keep on going. It's an encouraging song for me and I feel it's a song for women as well. So those are the two ones that I can identify. Now, if you ask me this question two, two years from now, I'll probably tell you something totally different. Absolutely. Yeah. Same goes for me. Doju, it has been fascinating. It's been really wonderful to have this chat with you and, and yeah, and just get a little bit more, you know, behind the woman. <laughs> Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Hadley. Absolute pleasure. Pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, then please like, share and subscribe. Original music created by Solar Kid, produced by Spotcaster at Boabalb and branding by Victoria at Generic, a Moaxan company.